Hey, it's Mark Shifley here. You're listening to the Jet Centric Podcast. Hey there, Jets fans. Welcome back to the Jet Centric Podcast. My name is Adrian, one of your hosts, and this is episode 84 an interview with myself interviewing Dave Starman. Uh, he is a scout right now for the new Seattle NHL team that's coming up. Uh, he's also been working with USA Hockey for like 24 years. I know he does some a lot of goalie stuff with them. He's a developmental coordinator for goalies in New York State. Uh, he talked a little bit about that. He's uh, well known for being NCAA analyst. So he covers a lot of the college hockey. Uh, so we kind of get into that. And uh, yeah, so uh, Dave Starman coming up. Uh, I did get him to talk about Dylan Sandberg. Uh, the day that I had the interview arranged with him was the day that Dylan Sandberg was actually signed. So it worked out perfect because I was able to ask him and knowing that he covered NCAA, I knew he'd have a couple of great uh, points to make. So we posted that audio the other day, the day of uh, Dylan Sandberg uh, and the interview. Um, and so if you heard that first five minutes or that five minute clip, that's actually the beginning of the episode. So you hear that right away. So if you want to skip over it, if you already listened to it, which actually quite a few you did, which is kind of cool. I know everyone's starving for some news. So uh, uh, you can skip over it if you like, or just listen to it again. So first five minutes of this episode. Also ask him about Hellebuck, uh, again, covering college hockey and the fact that he's based out of New York and um, uh, Hellebuck played out of Massachusetts there, UMass Lowell. Uh, he had some interesting things to say about his career too. So yeah, a little Sandberg excerpt and a little Hellebuck in there too. So Dave Starman, uh, he's the guy, what I'm talking to. Uh, as far as upcoming content, just want to get to that about the show. Obviously, there's not much going. I see the Legal Curve guys have taken um, taken a break. Um, so that kind of stinks for people that are really into those guys. But uh, I know that numbers listening-wise and podcasts are kind of down everywhere. I've talked to a couple people about this stuff. And um, yeah, I think everyone's uh, routines have been interrupted and they're looking for different news as opposed to just what they're uh, usually listen to but we still want to keep putting out some things but certainly not at the at a high rate i think we're going to delay the trivia episode closer to when we know that hockey is coming back when the excitement is a bit higher give us some time to prepare some prepare some questions uh did want to do a redraft show just all the uh, first rounds um that the jets uh, got you know ehlers Shifley, all these guys kind of go back and see if anybody would choose any you know different i've been listening to the bill simmons podcast and they've done some redrafting things it's been really fun so hopefully we can do that and make it uh make it interesting for people to listen to uh the last thing i'm going to say which i won't go too much into is uh after sort of i don't want to say running the podcast but uh, certainly running the twitter for the podcast and trying to organize the podcast the last two years i'm actually leaving the podcast uh having dave starman on uh, was part of that for me because I'm interested in looking at scouting and uh, pursuing that. So I'm going to pre- be pursuing a different podcast, very niche, just about scouting and sort of my journey of uh, wanting to become a scout, not even an NHL scout, but just a, a hockey scout and learn about that and interview different scouts. So I'll be leaving. Podcast will be in great hands. Uh, still, it's still going to go on. There's going to be lots of things, but you'll hear my voice a couple more times. But uh, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to do a big thank you speech, but I'd say if I had to thank anyone, it would probably be um, everyone that stuck with the podcast from the beginning, like Jimmy. Jimmy's been around forever, and uh, obviously C-Mac, close friend, and Ryan for all his audio stuff and, uh, you know, bouncing ideas off him. I'd have to say uh, those are people, and then obviously all the guests. So, uh, yeah, you'll hear me again. Uh, not totally gone just yet, and maybe in the future when I'm doing some episodes and there's not as much Jets content happening at that time, uh, maybe the Jet-centric guys that are taking over can, uh, which are the people that I just named, uh, maybe they'll post some of those episodes too. Anyhow, long intro, um, but yeah, just wanted to let you guys know that I'm leaving, and uh, whatever, that's fine. It's uh, 
but it's in good hands. And anyhow, let's get to the interview and I'll be quiet. Here we go. Okay, so the first question I want to get to with you is talking about Dylan Sandberg. Today is the day that he signed with the Jets, three-year entry-level contract. You covering NCAA, I'm curious what you can tell tell us about Dylan Sandberg and what you've seen from him. First, he's a great kid, and Winnipeg's getting a great player because they're getting a player that's one of their drafts that really wants to be there. And I think that's one of the cool things about it. Like when I, when I used to sit and talk with, with him a little bit you know, when we would broadcast games in Minnesota Duluth, we talk a little bit about the future, and, and they always seem to have a lot of exuberance for the fact that Winnipeg took him and, and that he was going to go play there. So I, I think that was kind of a neat concept with, with him. And when you look at him as a player, he's multifaceted. And I think one of the things he doesn't get enough credit for is how well he can play defense because people think that he's this big offensive mobile defenseman, and he is, but he can play in his own end pretty well too. And you know, the, the things that stand, about, stand out about me for him is not necessarily the guy that, can go back on a retrieval and shoulder check and have a little deception in his game and make a play. I mean, that's there. I think he's better when he is the outlet for his partner or he's the outlet for the low guy that goes and gets a puck and gives it to him and lets him get moving because once that big body gets flowing, boy, he can he get up to top speed pretty quickly. And I think, to me, that's one of the most impressive parts of his game. He's a really big man that's got some explosion that gets up to top speed and gets between the blue line really, really quickly. And that's you know, that's the, the fun part about his game. I think one of the impactful parts about his game is he's smart, he's physical, he's got a hell of a shot, and I think off the puck over three years, he's really improved in terms of his ability to read and, and sort out. So I, I think moving forward for him, the, the key to, to me for Samberg is what is he at the pro level? Because I'm not sure at the NHL level he's the same player he was at the NHL level, but I also think that his skills at a skater are good enough that he could sit there as a top four defenseman and be a meaningful contributor to a really good team. So then now that you say that, I'm, I'm curious, um, given that he, I don't want to say he stayed in college long or anything like that, but given that he probably had a chance to come join the Jets earlier, that Shovel Day F had chased, chased him, do you think that when he uh, starts with the Jets uh, next year or the organization that he starts in the AHL, or do you think that he's kind of ready to kind of make that jump, uh, especially given where the Jets' uh, defense is kind of uh, has some holes in it, I suppose? I'm one of those guys that really believes, like many others do, that defensemen are, and goaltending too, but, but defensemen are a late matriculation position. And I really feel like if you're a young defenseman and you can play a couple hundred games in the American League, it's only going to make you that much better when you get to the National Hockey League and stay there. And we've seen a lot of cases around the NHL where sometimes young defensemen get brought up early and get rushed into the lineup, and, and it doesn't work for them. And then there are times where you get a guy that spent some time in the American League and holds his craft and learns the pro game and learns how to be a pro and the, the professional lifestyle, taking care of your body, eating properly, proper rest, proper habits. Sometimes I think for a, a young defenseman who's got a ton of talent and, and where the sky is the limit, Spending some time on the developmental side is not the worst thing in the world. He's coming out of a program at Minnesota Duluth that has done a tremendous job at developing defensemen. Jason Herter is a former pro defenseman. Head coach Scott Sandler is a former pro defenseman. And those two guys have made magic when it comes to developing really good defensemen. You think of Scott Perinovich. You think of Mikey Anderson. You think of Nick Wolf, who just signed a pro contract. You go back to Brendan Kotick, who's a big guy who was a Division three player who signed a pro contract in the American League. I mean, they, they, they have really been able to... Neil Pionce another one. I mean, they have created some really good defensemen there. 
to me, for Sandberg, this is just my, my personal opinion. If he was able to spend some time in the American League figuring out the pro game before he came up to the NHL, I think that that makes him even that much better when he when he gets there. So, so if he goes down to the Moose, we shouldn't all right. Then you think that's that's the right move, and that that's good to hear coming from somebody who's you know been around and done this stuff. Because as fans, you know, we get a little excited about every draft pick, and as soon as the guy comes up, we want to see him right away, right? But uh, I guess the the process is is part of this, right? Additional question, and I think that the the, the process part of it is to me the be all and end all. I think each and every player develops at a different pace, and. Sometimes smaller players develop faster than bigger players. Some bigger players, if they're forwards, they might develop faster than bigger defensive. It, it, to me, it's there's that old thing that we use in USA Hockey a lot, you can't speed farm. Like no, matter, no matter how much water you pour on a plant, that plant develops when it develops. And I think sometimes for players, that's the same way too. And You, know, you can look at Dylan Sandberg and, and see him play some NHL exhibition games and maybe play some NHL regular season games early just to get a taste of it, and it'll probably look fine. But it's the process. It's over 80 games. Can you have your A game, or at the very least, a really good B game over the course of 80 games at that young age playing in the NHL, which is an unforgiving league and will chew you up if you're not ready? And that's why I like to see a lot of young defensemen, if they can, spend some time in the American League honing their craft so that when they get to the NHL, they are ready to go. Right on. I like it. All right, let's uh, move along to uh, now what you're currently doing, at least uh, one of your, your many uh, hats that you wear. Uh, you're a scout with uh, the new Seattle team. So uh, I'm curious, first of all, uh, with that, uh, the Seattle team, what type of scout you're going to be doing? I know that you do a lot of work, uh, analyst stuff with the NCAA. So are you going to primarily be focused on scouting for them there? Or is it pro? Uh, where, what is the hat that you wear with uh, the, the new NHL Seattle team? This year, based in New York, I was handling NHL scouting. So I, I and the Islanders were one of the teams I got to see a ton, and it was it was really good for me personally. After you know, close to ten years scouting predominantly the the NCAA and a little bit the American League with with Toronto and Montreal, it was really good to be able to see the NHL on a more consistent basis. Because from my perspective as a scout, it really changed the way that I looked at some players, and you know, I can. It's funny, I can go through lists when I was with Toronto, with Montreal, of NHL or NCAA free agents that I was really high on that I were convinced were going to be a top four NHL defenseman. But when you watch really good top four NHL defensemen on a night-to-night basis, you realize it's they're different than what you might have thought watching the NCAA guys consistently. And, and so for me personally, I think it has really sharpened my eye in terms of what I'm looking for among NCAA players, whether drafted or undrafted, what I'm looking at in terms of what a player needs to be a legitimate top two, top four, top six, or even a seventh defenseman at the NHL level. So that, that's kind of what what I did a lot of this year, and and it was uh, it was like I said, it was really good for me to be able to see this uh, with a with a different perspective, and and I'm thankful that Ronnie Francis and Ricky Olchek assigned me to that for this year. Well, you know what happens down the road, I don't know in terms of of coverage, but I'm thrilled to that, but I really got a chance to see the NHL for a full year. So in saying that, do you think that's probably like a good thing for people, for scouts to actually do is to maybe switch between the pro and the amateur to see what did that development looks like at the end and actually see more of the pro stuff and also see the minor, like how, and, and look back on a player's trajectory and see how well it matched against people's projections and, and everything like that. Cause I, I've heard before something about people, uh, you know, switching jobs every five years, not being like a, a bad 
kind of deal because you kind of get a new perspective, uh, maybe beat writers kind of switching teams and or people within uh, media. Do you think that's uh, maybe the uh, the future of scouting or have you already seen that happen where people not necessarily get info passed on from another scout from another another level, but where people are actually looking for opportunities and maybe that'd be good to to switch over from side to side? That's a great question, and it's something that a lot of teams are doing right now. I, I remember I was having dinner one night after a game with, with one of the directors of amateur scouting for one of the teams, and he said to me, what we do with our amateur guys is we make sure that they see five NHL games and five AHL games every year in addition to their amateur, doing their amateur scouting. So that way they get a perspective of what the NHL looks like, what the American League looks like, so they can, they can do some mixing and matching when it comes to what they're looking at on the amateur side. And those are the guys that are looking at amateur scouting in terms of, of how they're going to rank players for the draft. So I, I And the same thing on, on the pro side. They want their pro guys to go see a couple of NCAA games or a couple of major junior games a year so they can just see some difference in terms of the players that are coming up and, and, and be able to compare that to the NHL. So I, I think that if, if you can run the spectrum, that is great. If time affords you to do it, that is terrific. And you know, there, there's, a, there's a talk show host there in the U.S. who I remember once saying that if you don't reinvent yourself every five years, you're doing yourself a disservice. So I, I, I do think that every once in a while, if, if you could change your perspective and, and see things a different way or, or, or take a look at a different league, it's probably really good for you as a, as a hockey ops person. Right. Now, uh, back to the Seattle thing specifically, I'm curious, uh, in your experience, you mentioned uh, being with uh, the Maple Leafs and, and with the Canadians before too. Um, what kind of, is there any new approaches that you could talk about that you're seeing with Seattle? Um, I know, I think one of their first hires, I believe, was somebody who is in analytics, which I mean, other teams already don't get to do a new hire with teams that have been around for a hundred years, right? The the two previous teams that you've been on, the, the you're on the newest team and, and two of the oldest teams before that. But I'm just curious about any, like, uh, any other new approaches towards uh, scouting, whether it be on the amateur or the pro side. I know that uh, Seattle held a forum for the fans to kind of meet all the scouts. And so I'm just wondering, like, is the new thing going to be continued access to the process in some way to fans? And, uh, and maybe what that looks like for uh, your experiences, how, how different it might be and, uh, uh, you know, the positives of it. You know, that's a really interesting – I never thought about that. It was two of the oldest teams in history of hockey, you know, with the newest one. I never even thought about that as, as I reflected on Toronto, Montreal, now Seattle. That's kind of neat to think about. But when you, when you take a look at the newer ways of doing things, I, there's a great article that just came out in The Athletic about, you know, what scouts look, look for and what their priorities are. And there was a, a question about analytics and, and how much they use them and, you know, the impression of guys who played the league, you know, 50 years ago and, and that's all they want to do is see games. They don't want to read paperwork or notes or stats or anything like that. But, you know, I, you made a good point about Seattle. The, one of their first hires uh, was a young lady named Alexandra who actually went to college in Georgia and was, was more on the stat side of things. And, you know, she got into the analytics side of it, and from everybody that I have talked to, apparently she is top-notch. I cannot wait to spend some time talking about that side of, of hockey with, with our analytics department once we, we all gather as a group. And uh, I think in Montreal, I know that analytics mattered. I know that the eyeball test is certainly number one with every scout. They want to be in the rink, and they want to see games because there's so much that you can see in the rink that you can't see on tape, you can't see watching TV, despite – how good the angles are now and, and how clear the picture is in HD and, and that type of thing. And these broadcasts now are so good. But there are still some things you need to be in the ring to see, and especially when it comes to behind the play, body language on the bench, communication, 
how players interact, players interacting with officials. That there's a lot of different little things that go on. So, so I do believe that being in the rink and the eyeball test is paramount to being able to make decisions on players. But I also do think that every little piece of information is important. It's what you do with it that matters. It's, it's you know, I, I liken it to making dinner. I mean, you can give me 18 different ingredients. The ones that I use are the ones that are going to matter the most to me for the quality of the product that I want to put out in terms of the meal I'm making. So I think that you need to take into account that there's a lot of great information out there. And then I think you need to, for your own personal usage, figure out the information that works for you the best, that helps you make your decisions. And are there numbers out there that can help you and or hurt your case when it comes to arguing for a player or the way you feel about it? So take a look at the notes, take a look at the stats, take a look at the analytics, and trust your eyes, trust your gut, and trust what you know works. That kind of leads me to a question that I didn't really have beforehand, but now that you say that talking about um, just trusting and, and seeing and, and using all those things after, I'm curious what um, the difference between your your um, pre-scouting or pre-reporting or pre, you know, getting ready to scout a player or a team or, or whatnot, how that's different to afterwards, because I'm, I'm going to assume that you don't just go in blind. Maybe some people do, maybe they like that and they just want to figure it out on the fly and then go back and check. But I'm curious what the, the, what you look at beforehand and what you kind of come up with after, uh, afterwards. And if it's like 50, 50, you know, getting ready versus, you know, writing your reports afterwards, or is it like not that much getting ready and you just want to see it. And maybe even more for you specifically, not uh, what you've seen everybody else do. Cause I'm sure everyone else has their process. So. I'll tell you what, you see the movie Slapshot, right? Uh, yes, I have. <laughs> oh, of course. So if you watch Slapshot once a week, I guarantee you that every time you watch that movie, you'll find something in it you didn't see before. Right. And I think players are the same way. I think that every time you go see a player, you may see something you hadn't seen before. It can be good or bad, but you might see something different each time you go watch. I, I also think it depends on what level of player you're watching. If you're watching the NHL versus the American League versus Major Junior versus the NCAA versus the USHL or, or the Manitoba Junior League, I think that each time you go watch different players in different scenarios, you're going to see different things and age factors in too. Like I can tell you this from watching the NCAA. It, it, sometimes it's really hard with some of these younger players, the 18, 19 year olds. It's really hard to find them be really consistent over a course of five or six games. So you get a wide range of things to look at from that player, good and bad, that can help you build a book and figure out what that player somewhat is so far in their career. At the NHL level, it's a little different. Those guys are a little bit more consistent because they've learned how to be. And, you know, at the NHL level, if you have a bad game on Friday, you do. You know, maybe Saturday you don't have as great a game as you as you want to, but I guarantee you it kind of stops right there because the next game is not too far ahead, and those, most of those players have had to get themselves out of the doldrums. With the NCAA, you can go watch a player and play on Friday, Saturday night. Maybe they didn't have a great weekend. They're not going to play again until the following Friday. Mm-hmm. So that bad game on Saturday night is going to sit with them all week. As it was the coaching staff all week. So their job is to make sure that the following Friday is pretty good. And let's say you have a bad Friday, Saturday, and then you get a bye week. You might not play again for two weeks. That's what you do for a couple of weeks now. you got to figure out a way to mentally get yourself ready for that next viewing that somebody's going to see you play and to make sure that you're ready to contribute to your team. So I just think that each and every game that you go into, you do go in with some expectations, but you also can keep an open mind as to maybe you'll see something that you hadn't seen before. And I know a lot of scouts go in wanting to look for things. A lot of scouts go in not necessarily sure what they might find. It, I think it's very personal when it comes to that approach. But then there are times where, and let's say this is at the NHL level, there are times where your GM may say to you, hey, I need a number three center. Like we're, we're getting to the trade deadline. I need a number three center. Go find me one. 
And then you're going specifically to go find one particular player on that particular team you're watching, and you're really only watching the centerman that you think might be available for you in a trade or maybe as a free agency thing somewhere at the end of the season. And that's where it differs a little bit in terms of what you're going into a game looking for. Right. Yeah, I guess if you have your marching orders versus just, you know, the starting a different, like for amateur scouting, right, at the beginning of the season, maybe identifying a bunch of players and kind of going in blind because you got the year to figure it out. But, yeah, like you say, if you got your marching orders, then that probably changes everything, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, and with the guys on the amateur side, I mean, like I, I always loved that argument, you know, back when the, the Eichel McDavid draft, when people were talking about, you know, who would you take first, Eichel or McDavid? And I know everybody talked about that all year. You know, for the amateur guys, it's interesting because there's really only four teams that conceivably are going to have to make that decision. So the rest of the teams in the NHL, you know, they're trying to figure out, okay, well, wait a minute, who are we taking fourth? Like McDavid and Michael are going to be gone. So the next thing comes into player C and player D. Like, so if we're picking third, are we taking C or D? If we're picking fifth, are we taking player E, F, or G because it's spread down a little bit more at that point? And that's where I think on the average side it gets really neat. There's only, as we said, there's only a couple of teams that are going to be in the, in the running have to make that decision who we take you number one or number two if there's if there's a guess as to who it's going to be right. now um i, I want to come back to the sort of process for deciding things like as a group uh, of scouts but uh, i kind of want to veer away from it for a minute uh i'm curious which player or players uh, maybe uh have your specific fingerprints on it maybe maybe players that you've developed with usa hockey or if it's uh people that you scouted that you went to bat for and you said we need this guy or whatnot and then the teams that you worked for actually went and, and got them not um, so where your your voice actually uh, had some some play in on decision making, which which players uh, can you identify that were kind of your guys, I suppose? I'll tell you a great story. Uh, my first year at Toronto was Ben Scriven's senior year at Cornell, and I really like Scriven as a goalie. Now I remember Ben as a freshman at Cornell because he did a lot of their games, and as a freshman he was nothing more than a big rebound machine. I mean he made a lot of saves. And he was kicking pucks all over the planet. And I really liked him as a goalie, but I was worried about his rebound control. The more I got to watch him, the more I saw him improve. That by the time when I got hired by Toronto to do NCAA free agency, my number one goal that year was to convince the Maple Leafs to sign Ben Scribbins. And I watched him a ton that year, and I probably had 15 viewings on him through the course of the season. I was sold. And Dave Poulin was my immediate superior. And I, and I said to Dave, I, I, I really think that this is a free agent that we're going to want. I think he could be a solid backup at the NHL level for at the least. And this is a guy that I think we should bring in. At the very least, he makes the American League team better. But I, I am going to go to bat for Ben Scribble. That was my guy that year. And so, you know, Dave had seen him a little bit, but not a ton. And then we get to the Albany Regional in 2010. And that was the year that RIT and, and Jared DeMichael, is very goalie, he's now the assistant coach at UMass. Jared DeMichael wrote one of the great stories of all time, and he upset, uh, I think he upset Denver and UNH on the way to getting RIT to the Frozen Four, which nobody saw coming. But one of the teams that fell short in that regional was Cornell. They lost in the opening round to UNH, and Scriven was awful. It was the worst game I saw him play in four years. The game ends. Within three seconds of that game ending, Dave Poulin's on the phone. And he calls me, and I asked him, I said, hello? He goes, you sure about this? <laughs> and I, I said, hey, if you take his best game and his worst game away, and they're probably within two weeks of each other, and let's take his best game and his worst game off the table, this being his worst, yes, I'm sold. And Toronto wound up signing him. And he had a, he had a pretty decent NHL career. But, you know, I, I look back at him, and Charlie Lindgren's another one. Charlie Lindgren was playing at St. Cloud State, uh, goaltender there, and, and was pretty good. You know, another guy who undrafted and, 
and kind of got better through his college days. And, and Lindgren I had seen a ton of. And so Lindgren was kind of my guy in the free agent goalie race that year. And, and, and I remember Scott Melamy was my immediate superior, uh, you know, former Flyer, Panther. And they had a really tough regional game against Ferris State where they lost 5-4 in overtime. And Charlie wasn't very good in that game. Same conversation. Well, Clausy, right as soon as the game's over, he goes, you better be sure about this one. I went, hey, once again, you take away his best game and his worst game, I'm still pretty sold. And I, I know Charlie's had some, some success at the NHL level so far, and I think somewhere down the road he probably will. That's, that's awesome. It, it, uh, and that's good because it kind of leads actually into my next question, which I kind of put on the back burner for a second, was about the process for making uh, decisions. I mean, uh, again, it, we can declare that it's a little going to be a little bit different on the amateur side versus the pro side. But I'm curious how uh, teams uh, come up with consensus, right? Is it, like how much of it is a group effort? Uh, how often do you feel like there's too many cooks in the kitchen trying to, you know, get their piece in about a player or the, their guy or anything? Uh, so I'm just curious if you could uh, maybe speak about the the process there. It sounds like that's a very intimate one that you had with just your, your superior. But generally, is it more of a group uh, process when you're you're doing these things? Yes and no. I, I mean, it's for the guys that are area guys, and, you know, I was kind of an area guy with the NCAA. And, you know, for a guy like myself, you know, I would I would see games and, and I would make my decisions as to who are, you know, the two or three or four top free agents for the NCAA that I felt fit the club that I was working for. Toronto and Montreal were a little different in terms of what they were looking for. And you've got to learn the, the culture of your organization and kind of get the lay of the land of, of what your group is looking for. And, you know, the one thing with, you know, the Scrivens thing is I just kept reporting to Dave. I just kept telling Dave, hey, I really believe in this guy. I really believe in this guy. And here's the bottom line. In any industry, you're going to hire people you trust. You're going to hire people to do a job because they have an expertise in that area. And, you know, for me, goaltending was always an area that was, was strong for me because, you know, I was one and, and, and it's a, you know, part of the game that I've been involved in for a long time. So, you know, the, the, the question that I was able to answer for Dave regarding why I thought Scrivens could be a good pro, you know, the answers that he got were answers that he could go to Brian Burke and say, hey, listen, I, I trust Dave on this one, and here's why I trust him, and here's what he's telling me, and it's been pretty consistent with some of the guys that have just filed reports on him, you know, throughout the course of his career in, in other areas. And I've seen the kid play. I like him, but I'm going to trust Dave's decision. That's kind of how it works in a in a lot of ways. And the, the one thing that I've really learned in, in the scouting world is how much NHL GMs and how much – directors of amateur and pro scouting really trust their eyes in the field because you can't see everybody. So at some point you've really got to defer from yourself to your subordinates and your scouting staff and, and say to them, Hey, you know, I've got a guy that has been unbelievably passionate about this player. He believes in this player. He likes this player. Here are the reasons why he likes this player. Here are the concerns he's got about this player, but this player he really feels is a player that our organization should have. And when there's trust within a within a group of scouts and a group of hockey ops executives, then really good things happen. And it's just one of the it's one of the fun things to be a part of in the scouting world. Sometimes these arguments can get pretty intense, and sometimes you know they can be pretty quiet. But the 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 beauty of it is is there's trust in the room, there's trust in the opinions of the people on the ground because the people who are making their arguments for a particular player have probably seen that player play somewhere between 40 and 50 games. And I think it's a really good sample size. And you know, one of the guys I really enjoyed doing this with was Shane Chirillo when I was in Montreal. I thought Chirillo had a great mind for, for asking the right questions about why a player should be considered. And, yeah, you know, part of the game is asking the right questions, and part of the game is being able to listen for the right answers. Yeah. 
I like that. I like how you summarize it there, too. Um, I guess uh, that kind of leads to maybe a, a, not a darker question, but a more negative one. Sometimes I'm sure that you work so hard uh, on like scouting a certain player, sort of on the other side, not who you have your fingerprints on, but then you don't even get your guy, right? Like, uh, have you ever had that crushing defeat of basically having a year of everybody you looked at and they weren't available when uh, when uh, when you wanted to get them, or the the group sort of went a different direction? Have you had that sort of feeling? Because I feel like scouting is going to be the unsung when things go great, uh, generally too. Nobody really thinks about them. The general manager gets most of the credit, but then also when things don't go well, especially for individual ones, you probably don't hear too much about it too, but I'm sure there's some stories of, you know, trying going going to bat for a guy or a couple of them and then not really getting any of them either. You know what, that's, that's just a part of the game. And it's a frustrating part of the game, but it's just part of it because you got to think about it. You know, there's, there's a lot of players out there. There's a lot of teams, a lot of good players that a lot of teams want. And sometimes it's, and sometimes it's on the player side too. So you know, let's think about it from a draft perspective. You know, I, I can, I can tell you for sure. Every scout I know has got one or two players that they really went to bat for in the draft and the pick before they were going to take that player, somebody else did. And all that work that you're mentioning kind of goes down the drain, but it really doesn't because remember, this is a different NHL than it was, you know, 25, 30 years ago, where when you got drafted by a team, you, you know, you could stay there your whole life. You know, now between restricted free agency and then unrestricted free agency and all kinds of different nuances, if you really, really like a player and that player gets drafted, here's the thing. Within two years, that player could be up for trade. That player four to five years down the road might be a free agent that's in your wheelhouse. I mean, it's like there's a lot of different dynamics where you can circle back to that player and everything you knew about him as an amateur you're just building a new book on a, a new book on them as a pro, yeah. and that's kind of one of the neat things about it. It's a little bit cyclical in terms of how those things happen. And also, don't forget there are a lot of scouts where, hey, listen, you may love to play. Let's say you're scouting for Edmonton, you may have loved this kid in the draft, and he went to somebody else. But now, two years later, you're working for Dallas, right. and all of a sudden, this player is part of a trade, and you walk in and say, hey, I would love to have drafted that guy when I was at Edmonton. You know, if we think we can get him in a trade now here in Dallas, let's, let's go get him because here's why I loved him coming through the draft. So just because the player got away from you from a draft perspective doesn't mean he's got away from you forever. I like that. I like uh, the term that you use, the building the book on a player too, right? It's not like everything just goes out the window as long as they're still playing professional hockey somewhere. They're still available in some sense, and you can still continue. You know, and maybe you hand that book over, right, from the amateur side. You tell the pro guys, okay, now I really want you to watch for this, right? So if there is that kind of Scott Miller me a lot of credit. This guy had a really good impact on my career. And the one thing he did, my last two years in Montreal, the one thing he said to me was, is I want you to make sure that you try to see five to ten American League games a year, but go watch the players that you thought were really good NCAA free agents and continue on them. Then now go watch them as pros and tell me what you think of them. Because having watched them as the amateur guys that you really want to bat for them, now go watch and see what they're doing in the American League and see if they're playing the role in the American League that you thought that they could play coming out of college because it might help you see players in a different way for better and for worse. But I think it's a good exercise for your hockey mind to go do that. And I can't think of enough for, for putting that challenge in front of me because that's another thing that I thought really helped. But that continues that concept of building the book on a player. And, and I really feel like you know, information is power and players move. They change teams. And it's important that you keep building. And then from the NCAA level, remember, if an NCAA player plays, gets drafted and plays three years and is going to come out and his team 
and he tells his team that if the team makes the offer and he doesn't want to sign there, August 15th of that year becomes a free agent. So you might be tracking this player for three years, knowing that he's a draft choice of an NHL team. Now all of a sudden he declares free agency, you're right back in the game. Yeah. I like that. That, that. That's great, too. It's such a simple directive that Scott gave you, but it's probably helped in, in a lot of ways like you're sharing. So that's that's really great stuff. Now, talking about building the book on a player, I wasn't going to ask you about this. I, I wish I'd, that I, I had thought of it before because, again, I know you're kind of based out on the East Coast there. Curious, and you could say no because I know your your involvement with Seattle, but did, did you have any comments about Connor Hellebuck that uh, you can maybe pass on to uh, Jets fans that might listen to this, or you can just pass? If if you like, it's it's totally fair. But I just thought of it. I'm like, oh geez, I should totally ask. He's goaltending East Coast, right? I mean, he was at uh, what was it? U UMass Lowell, I think. Um, UMass Lowell, yeah. Yeah. So I'm just curious if if you have anything that you can uh, kind of enlighten us about Connor Hellebuck and his career, and maybe if you'd have him for Vesna. Again, this could be conflict of interest, so maybe you can pass. Like I said, so. No, no. Here's here's what I can say about Connor Hellebuck. He was a great, great college goalie, and he. But I'll tell you what, and I say this as a compliment to him, he was the most boring goalie to watch at the NCAA level. He was a big blocker who barely moved, and, but he was good at it. Like, he knew where to be. Positionally, he was terrific. Uh, Technique-wise, he was great. He was competitive. He, was, he had great hockey IQ. He was good with the puck. No rebounds. Like, I loved him as an NCAA goalie. Then I didn't see him for a couple of years. And now when I watch Connor play as an NHL goalie, he is totally different than the NCAA goalie that I watch. He is now more of an athlete. He uses his legs better. He uses his arms better. He catches pucks better. He's more active in the crease. He's a little bit, like I say, he's more athletic. I, I love the transformation that Hellebuck has undergone from being just a pure blocker to being kind of a hybrid. And, and, and good for him because he took the NCAA game that was successful for him there and he became a pro goalie with just a maturation process and and figuring out they need to be more at the next level to be successful. That's awesome. Yeah, we here in Winnipeg love him. I'm sure everybody, if uh, if they had a vote right now, would have him for for Vesna because he's uh, you know did a lot to carry this team uh, certainly early on. Um, I'm gonna give yeah. you one last question, and then I'll just kind of ask you about what you're currently up to because I know you have a bit of a hard out. But um, uh, now I know this is gonna apply a bit more on the amateur side, but you've been around, so I'm sure you get it. But I'm curious if you can talk about how. Um, scouts, again, mostly on the amateur side, can prove the value that they bring to um, a value uh, to a team because you could take a compilation of Pronman and, and Button and Scott Wheeler and all these amateur uh, guys that scout amateurs and put their list together and then go off that board and almost draft the exact same guys you did before. So if you end up with the same product at the end, how valuable is the process and how do you prove that that process is, is valuable to, to a team that you're working with? It's an excellent question, and the guys that you just mentioned are all guys that have done this before and have sat in those meetings and have put their onions on the line for players that they really like that they think should either be drafted or signed or traded for or whatever. I mean, those are guys that understand it because they've lived it. The difference now is they can rank whatever, however they want, whatever players they want. They're more in the information dissemination business than they are in deciding who's the right player for the right organization. And that, to me, is the difference now. And, and trust me, I've been on that side of it, too. But that's the difference now. Like, I, you can look at a player and say, okay, um, Alex Lafreniere, right? He's the number one pick of the draft. Uh, that'll be a consensus. But as you start moving down the line, they got to look at it and say, is this player the right player for us? Remember, like that, remember the draft when Quinn Hughes got picked? 
Detroit passed over Quinn Hughes and Vancouver got him. Obviously, Detroit decided that Quinn Hughes was a really, really good player who might not have been a player for them. Other than that Quinn Hughes any less of a player than who Detroit picked, it just means that the player that Detroit invested in for their pick was a player that fit their organization more based on the extensive work that their amateur scouts did. And that is why I think amateur scouts being in the buildings, meeting with players, meeting with agents, doing their background work, doing their homework, doing all the informational gathering that helps them build a personality and build a, a book on a player, that's where those guys make their money and that's where they become invaluable to NHL teams because we're all in the information gathering business. And that's where I think those guys really provide a tremendous service to their team. So whoever you've picked in the first round, especially when a lot of good players are still left, whoever you've picked in the first round, it means that your scouts really do their homework to make sure that that player is the player for their organization. Great answer. I love it. Okay, now I'll, I'll leave you with the, the final thing here. Uh, what are you up to these days? I know you you have your many, many hats that you wear and have worn, for sure. You've been been around doing this for a while at a high level, but uh, mention the Seattle, the scouting, you talked about exactly what you're doing there. Uh, what's your involvement with uh, other coaching and USC hockey and whatnot at this point? Uh, well, I'm, right now I'm a goaltending development coordinator for New York State, and nationwide, about eight years ago or so, a couple of us, you know, the old guard, came up with an idea to, to take the American development model that we've got here in the U.S. in a different direction and make it a little bit more goaltending friendly because we, we did such a great job on the player development side, but we never really had a goalie on the ADM staff. So a few of us got together and we kind of created the framework of what we thought could be a national goalie development program. And Phil Ozdair, who's now a scout for Detroit, was the first one who, who took the job and he really ran with it, did, did wonderful stuff. And now Stevie Thompson out of Alaska is is taking it the rest of the way and we've created this hashtag it's called 51 in 30 and the goal of the usa hockey goaltending development program nationwide is to have american goalies playing 51 percent of the minutes at the nhl and ahl level for the year 2030 and it's a really strong initiative to do better job of developing goalies providing information for coaches where they can work with their goalies better we're trying to teach coaches how to be better goalie coaches even if they weren't goalies and it really seems to be getting a lot of traction as, as we're seeing the numbers of goalies start to rise. It's, it's a wonderful program to be a part of. So that, in conjunction with the coaching education program, is, is something that keeps me busy. Obviously, there's all the TV work, and, and I still enjoy coaching. I've been this is my 34th year coaching, and, and it's been between from Mites to the American Hockey League levels where I've been doing it. It's been great. And you know, the, the thing that I really enjoy about it is the player development side. I, I don't get hung up on wins and losses, even though I'm a tier one guy. I, I don't get hung up on the wins and the losses. I want to make sure that the guys who played for me and I handled our defense this year, uh, I want to make sure that those six defensemen were really ready to be U15 midgets at the Tier 1 level, and I, and I think they all are, and that to me is, is my ego in doing this. And I was, I was lucky enough to work with a guy from out in your area. Aaron Asham and I worked together this year, and, and, and Aaron had a wonderful NHL career, and he is on the verge of becoming a great youth hockey coach. He gets it. He cares. He's passionate about it. Uh, he's got great information in his mind. He's, you can start to see he's connecting the dots between the information in his head and how to teach it, how to relate to the kids, and, and the demonstrations he does on the ice, which are terrific. And he's been, he's been a lot of fun to work with. So it just goes to show that you can continue to evolve even after you leave the NHL, and he's doing a wonderful job with it. Well, that's awesome. That's uh, great. And uh, I guess for all of us who you know get to see the, the output of people who put in 
all the work, uh, you know, behind the scenes, definitely the, thanks for all the work that you do. I mean, I obviously I'm in Canada, you're not affiliated with any teams that I follow, but I mean, it's, it's uh, great stuff to know that there's people doing this at the, at the lower levels and, and especially after your experience, right. To kind of go back and do that. I, I mean, lower age wise um, to go back and, and give back in a, in a significant way there. So that's, uh, that's awesome. And it's cool to hear about Aaron Nash and doing that too. So uh, that's great stuff. Uh, he's, I'm telling you, he's, he is having a ball. He's a funny guy. And, He's got a young six or seven year old who's good. Looks like he's going to be a dynamite player too. But he's a, like I said, he skates with some of the the, the bigger eight U's and and he does okay. So, you know, and I know Ash's daughter is is having a terrific career. I think she's at Notre Dame now in Saskatchewan playing with their program, and and she's a terrific player too. I I've, I've heard from him that she'll probably get some consideration somewhere down the road for the Canadian Olympic team. So the apple and the far fall far from the tree when it comes to Aaron's kids. Well, that's great stuff. Uh, Dave, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate this. Hope uh, I asked some uh, questions that you enjoyed answering. But, um, yeah, it was uh, it was a lot of fun, and I totally appreciate it. So thank you. Look forward to doing it again. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. I'm Kurt Kielbach, and thank you for listening to the Jet Centric Broadcast. <laughs>